When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host. So happy to be with you for this episode. I took a week off with everything that was going on, and with the beginning of free agency is often something that gets dominated by dunked on, but I wanted to get a kind of a bigger picture perspective on it and talk to Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite people to go through the big picture stuff with. And so we talk about the biggest signings all over the place, what we're looking forward to in Summer League, because Las Vegas Summer League is going to start on Friday, and numerous other topics. And no, if you know the conversations with the two of us, you know it goes in a lot of different directions, but also also a lot of fun. So conversation runs, I think it's about an hour and a half, and it is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You can post jobs for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. It's a, a really amazing interface. I've been very impressed with it. And hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Danny. How's it going, man? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. Pretty crazy week. I feel like... Um we maybe have become desensitized to all this craziness, but I went back last night and was just tracking like the number of stars, like either current or past all stars that had moved in the past like 10 days. And it was an unbelievably high number. Right. And for the second year in a row, the craziness started around the draft. I mean, you could even talk about the draft itself with that. But where I wanted to start was a thought that a couple of us were talking about at Utah Summer League over the last couple of days, which is that, in my opinion, and you can, of course, disagree with this if you feel that way, this offseason, as it has occurred, has made the league more broadly a lot more interesting. And more specifically, a lot of different teams are more interesting now than I expected because of what has happened. I agree. I think we've also come to just realize that Golden State's not going away. I mean, when you look at their summer and just in terms of how orderly it was, um, following up a 16 and one postseason, you know, you just sort of, we've all come to assume that they're just going to be there and be amazing and be, uh, you know, potentially record setting, uh, not only next season, but going into the future. So I think that does open up uh, a lot of secondary angles where we just have to fully embrace these other teams. Maybe they're not going to be as good as Golden State, but they're more interesting than, than they were last year. Uh, and in some cases, they're really star loaded. I mean, I, I would start with Houston and Oklahoma City for sure uh, in that conversation, but even Boston as well. So I think it's kind of a mental transition period of kind of getting used to how good Golden State is, getting used to their potential uh, dynasty here in the next few years. And then also you know, seeing the ripple effects of that where these other stars are deciding. Uh, we've got to make pretty drastic moves or their teams are deciding uh, on their behalf. We have to make pretty drastic moves uh, to get these guys in position to even try to keep up. Then the other part of that that I think creates a fascinating juxtaposition is that it looks like, obviously things aren't totally set yet, it looks like the teams that you could argue were the second and third best in the league last year, the Cavs and the Spurs, are largely going to stand pat this year. So you're going to have these other ascending teams that are trying to pass these two teams that stayed pretty stable that were phenomenal, one in the regular season, one in the playoffs last year. And I'm going to be really interested to see how that all works out too. For sure. I mean, I think if we look back, the tier one team 
last year was Golden State. The tier two teams uh, were Cleveland and San Antonio. The tier three teams were everybody else. And the gap between tier one and tier two, Golden State uh, and its major competitors, to me, has only grown wider this summer. I assume you agree with that. I mean, you look at Cleveland's offseason has just been a total mess. They sit out the draft. They lose their GM. They don't follow through on naming a replacement. They have to pay quite a bit to keep Kyle Korver, who was really a non-factor during the finals. They bring on Jose Calderon. He's not going to give you any real minutes. Um, They're exploring, you know, salary dump type trades that are not going to necessarily make them better, just kind of save their ownership some money. Uh, they're really not taking a step forward. You know, meanwhile, Golden State's really loading up and adding you know, numerous quality rotation pieces while also solidifying that Hamptons five group uh, for the foreseeable future. So to me, the gap there has really uh, widened. I don't know if we want to call that the diff, but the diff has gotten bigger between uh, Golden State and Cleveland. Uh, in terms of you know these teams that are coming up behind them, you know one thing I'd say about Houston, and they're the one that I'm probably the the most bullish on. I'm not sure that I necessarily think that they've done enough here to surpass San Antonio when it comes to regular season consistency. Like if I had to bet, I'd probably guess that San Antonio still finishes with uh, the number two seed in the West. But in a head-to-head playoff matchup, I like the Rockets a lot more with Chris Paul against San Antonio uh, than I liked them last year without Chris Paul. Also, the Rockets, assuming they keep Ryan Anderson in their in their starting five, which is my expectation at present, you know, that obviously could change. They are a team that is not hurt as much by San Antonio's refusal to go small. You know, if Pop keeps doing what he's been doing and just keeps with Kawhi at the three, Lamarcus at the four, and whoever probably Pow at the five, Ryan Anderson is more he's he's more useful in that series than he would have been had Houston made it past the Spurs and faced the Warriors where he would have been completely played off the floor. You could say, oh well, Ryan Anderson was still marginalized in that series, but I also think that the the talent around Houston, like just Chris Paul and PJ Tucker, I think is going to be a meaningful piece to this puzzle if those two teams face off again. I think that Houston is much better situated for that series now. Yeah, I do. I think I would take Houston in that series. Um, a couple of reasons. First, uh, Houston just never had the counters. You know, once San Antonio figured things out defensively, how they were going to try to play Harden, uh, once they settled in on that end, uh, Houston couldn't really you know shake itself free. They didn't have any backup plans. Chris Paul is a really, really overqualified backup plan, and he's a guy who can get you offense all over the court at the rim with the lobs, you know, behind the three-point line with his own shot. Uh, and then also, importantly, from the mid-range coming out of those pick and rolls. I mean, he can really beat you. And so the kind of cheat codes that San Antonio was using in terms of completely abandoning the mid-range in that series, that's not going to work anymore. Chris Paul can make you pay. Uh, and then also, I think the load caught up to Harden pretty obviously in that second round series in terms of the minutes, the touches, the usage, and just all of the defensive attention. Like, it was fine for 82 games. You can say the same thing for both him and Westbrook. Like, they were just loving life last year, uh, being able to play this insanely high usage. But that, as we all kind of knew and assumed, was not really going to work during the postseason, and it didn't. Uh, Chris Paul also had issues kind of wearing down with the Clippers, especially after when Blake uh, Blake went out in that first round series against Utah. 
Uh, he kind of ran out of gas in game seven. So you put these two guys together, I think it should be mutually beneficial. Uh, and again, it's going to really put a lot of pressure on what I consider to be kind of San Antonio's weak point is that point guard position. It's going to ask guys like Danny Green and, and Kawhi Leonard. I mean, there's going to be no plays off for those guys defensively uh, throughout the entire course of a series. Uh, and now you're going to be able to you know, really get some more contributions from these supporting guys, I think, that you're mentioning, whether it's Anderson or P.J. Tucker, because uh, so much attention is going to have to be paid to stopping both of those guards uh, in a series. So uh, I guess my big question with Houston is sort of where do they come in pace wise? You know, Chris Paul is not really a running up and down type of guy. Uh, Harden thrived in that at times. But then also, you know, he's pretty good uh, when you slow it down isolation, you know, try to get to the foul line. Uh, play that type of game you know one-on-one milk the clock he can play that way too so how D'Antoni manages that you know in terms of where do they come in I think LA was below average pace last year with Chris Paul obviously Houston was you know among the league leaders in pace last year to me that's sort of the big question Uh, but we know the game's going to slow down in the postseason and for that reason I think Chris Paul is going to be a big help yeah, I think that's a great point. And my thought with the Rockets right now is that I think they're going they're still going to run a lot in transition, but I think they might take longer to get into their stuff in the half court just because those guys are both so comfortable with it that I think they'll kind of feed off each other's comfort taking a little bit of extra time and working through stuff because I don't think you can change their stripes that much. But I also think Paul could be energized by this and A point that I think has been underappreciated in Chris Paul's thing is that he individually is such a winner in this because of the structure of how this happened. So, yes, there is a real risk because now that he picked up his his player option, it wasn't an ETO, it was an ETO for Blake. He picked that up. He has complete flexibility here. While the team does too, I think it's in many ways more valuable for him. So if he's not happy, if it doesn't work, he's not trapped in a bad situation. He might be leaving some money on the table, theoretically, if he if he decided he didn't want to do it, but he can. And if it works out well, then by all means, I, I'm sure they'd be happy to keep him. And that is a really good place to be when there's so much uncertainty about whether this will work. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really a test year for both Houston and Chris. From Chris's perspective, he has to be that number two guy now. I mean, this is not going to be his team. It's Harden's team. Not only has he kind of chased off, you know, fellow superstars like Dwight Howard in the past, but he's got that big monster extension number uh, from last year. Uh, You know, if it doesn't work, if egos become an issue, if touches somehow become an issue, if style of play becomes an issue, um, if any of those things arise to the surface, we know who Houston's going to choose, right? I mean, obviously, they're going to choose Harden over Chris, and so that's going to require – Uh, some interesting sacrifice from Chris Paul that he hasn't necessarily had to make uh, even in LA when he was sharing the limelight with guys like Blake and DeAndre it was still very clearly kind of his team and and the whole organization was kind of in his personality so uh, that will be something to track you know in in terms of that movement I think the other thing for the test year with from Chris Paul's perspective though is the banana boat thing here is really looming I mean to me the biggest hiccup uh, for that scenario that we had talked about for years now was if Chris uh, signed a long-term deal this summer if he did what we all expected him to do, which was opt out and cash in for four or five years. If he had done that, it really would have locked in that banana boat crew basically to the organization that paid Chris uh, because it would have been very difficult to try to trade a big contract number for Chris next summer. It just would get a little bit messier. It wouldn't have been impossible. But this version now, I, to me, is much cleaner because now you've got Chris as an unrestricted free agent next summer. You've got LeBron in the same position. You've got Dwayne Wade potentially in the same position. And now the only hiccup 
uh, is potentially Carmelo Anthony, where he could potentially be bought out this year. So he could also be in that same position uh, or he would just need to turn down a pretty lucrative uh, player option for the following year to kind of team up with those guys as well. And now they're not necessarily tied to any individual franchise. They can pick any destination they want to pick. So I think uh, something like that might have been in the back of Chris's mind when he makes this option decision where it's like, well, uh, I'm going to have a better chance to make the Western Conference Finals in Houston this year. I can see if it works with Harden. If it does, great. You know, Daryl Morey's going to take care of me down the road. If it doesn't, I have a really good backup plan, which is potentially playing with LeBron uh, in destination unknown the following season. And that's a pretty nice, flexible place to be in. It doesn't maybe make up for you know, what he probably wanted, which was, you know, $200 million in an ideal location uh, this summer, but it's still a pretty good place to be. And I think it's a much better place to be than what that Clippers team would have become for the 2017-18 season, because one of the other overarching things that I think is so surprising about this year is that I expected we were going to see a largely similar Clippers team and then potentially a largely similar Pacers team, depending on how they handled Paul George. Of course, it became more likely that they were going to move him as we got closer to the draft. But both of those players now, who knows whether they're going to stay in their current locations beyond this upcoming year, but both of them now become like some of the highest teams in the league pass rankings, at least at the beginning of the year, because we don't know what the heck these teams are going to be. Oh, for sure. I think Oklahoma City, if it works in Oklahoma City, they're going to be awesome to watch. And there's also, I think, a pretty realistic... Uh, backfire potential there. I mean, Paul George, you know, I've said this before, but Paul George treated the Eastern Conference playoffs like a Gatorade commercial. You know, he's demanding the ball down the stretch, you know, openly calling out his teammates, saying he wants to do everything. And now he's going to a team that's captained by uh, the leader in clutch usage rate basically ever, right? So one guy is going to get to shoot, one guy is going to have to watch. How's that going to play out? I think it's pretty fascinating. And all that tension that used to be there in terms of my turn, your turn criticism for uh, Russell Westbrook and uh, Kevin Durant, I think is really heightened uh, coming into this next season for Oklahoma City between Westbrook and George because George just isn't as good as Kevin Durant. He's not as good of a shot maker. He's not as an efficient shooter. Uh, he doesn't have his deep range. And so you know, his shot selection to me has always been a question, especially in recent years. Uh, he's kind of maybe fallen in a little bit to these Kobe Bryant tendencies of uh, you know, falling in love with bad shots. That stuff will bite them. Uh, and so you know, how does Westbrook react to that? Uh, and vice versa. I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see. Uh, here's one question I have for you uh, on this topic. How likely do you think it is that either uh, Paul George and also maybe Chris Paul wind up being potential trade pieces at the deadline if, for whatever reason, things don't quite work out? Uh, especially in Paul George's case, if I'm Presti, Aren't you thinking pretty strongly like you tested out early in the season? If there's butting of heads, you know, turn this into sort of like the Ibaka situation in uh, Orlando last year where it's like you get something before he leaves. Because I think the threat of Paul George leaving to L.A. is really going to mount the closer we get to next summer. Yeah, I I think that in terms of the structural elements, Paul George makes a lot more sense in that just because it looks so much more likely that he is gone. You know, he could be gone even if it works just because it's such a different opportunity. He's earlier in his career. You know, this is going to be kind of his prime contract, whereas for Chris Paul, as wonderful as he is, this is largely a post-prime deal. So he's thinking about this process in a very different way. 
But you also have to remember that Daryl Morey is one of the most proactive GMs in the league. And so if he feels like it's not going to work, if he feels he knows it's James's team, he could make a move too. Because why get, why not? If you think he's going to leave and you're going to lose him for nothing, even though, and they gave up more in that trade than basically any of the other guys. And I'm not criticizing Daryl for this, but they gave up more in that trade to me than OKC gave up for Paul George or that that Minnesota gave up for Jimmy Butler, which we'll have to talk about later. So yeah, there is a little bit of that sunk cost type thing, but Chris Paul is an incredibly valuable player. So if they decide, hey, this isn't working, I could totally see them moving him too. Yeah, I think it would have to be sort of a worst case scenario where like one of these sort of like D'Antoni, Mello in New York situations where like just for whatever reason, they can't see eye to eye on the basketball. We know Chris has very strong opinions about how the game should be played. And we know he's got a lot of self-confidence in his ability as a leader and a lead ball handler. So I'm not predicting that's going to happen. I think if one of the two of those guys gets traded during the season, my guess would be pretty strongly that it'd be Paul George. Uh, but it's just the kind of thing that we don't necessarily think about as we're uh, getting used to like the idea of Chris Paul in Houston or the idea of Paul George uh, in Oklahoma City. It's like, well, uh, given their contract structures here, this could be short term. Uh, a short-term stay and it could be even shorter than we think uh, given the personalities of those executives now of course they're going to come out this summer and say they're all committed to it uh, this is you know the their star foundation that they've been looking for they want to take care of these guys for a long time and that's how they should play it uh, but nothing is guaranteed when you're on these kinds of uh, you know short situations well and there's another big cascading effect here which i i don't know for sure that we're going to see but i'm feeling more comfortable about it than i did a week ago which is that this the move to get Paul George gives Russell Westbrook a logical out for declining the designated veteran extension this year because he can just say, hey, I want to see how it works out with Paul George, going to see how all this works. And you could see that from a genuine perspective or you could see that from a game playing perspective of, hey, like originally, if he didn't take that offer, I did a podcast with Royce Young late in the season, basically about the the prospect of Russell Westbrook basically writing his ticket out by not agreeing to that extension. I still would feel really uncomfortable if I were Sam Presti, if I were their ownership group, if he does that. But I'm sure that there's some cover given by saying, hey, we've transformed our team. I want to see how it works out. And then that creates a lot more risk for Oklahoma City than they would have had before. Here's an interesting question. If you're a Thunder fan and Westbrook doesn't take uh, the extension and then now he's in the situation where he's trying to just play it out and assess his options and Presti's basically committed to the strategy of, you know, boom or bust. Let's just hope that, you know, the, the Paul George trades enough to convince him to stay and, and hope that, you know, the extra money advantage and everything else down the road uh, is enough to keep him. I mean, if you're a Thunder fan, I guess what I wonder is if Westbrook leaves after all of this, do you treat him the same way you treated uh, Kevin Durant or does the Kevin Durant experience kind of shape your opinion of Westbrook because the season after uh, Durant left was so magical because Westbrook's got this great personality and because this arms race is just accelerating where everybody's looking to go compete for titles. Do you think Westbrook gets off easier if he leaves in Oklahoma City uh, from the local fan base uh, because of those conditions? Or do you think he becomes public enemy number two uh, right after Kevin Durant? I mean, to me, uh, I was just assuming he was going to become public enemy number two. But I was hearing more and more from Thunder fans who were saying, like, look, we would get it. You know, if Westbrook left, we'd understand it. We've seen it happen before. Uh, He gave us everything last season. And, you know, if he wants to go out there and try to be on a super team that takes down Kevin Durant, we're not going to begrudge him. 
I think it's a lot more understanding in his case for a couple of big reasons. One, Kevin Durant broke up a better team than Russell Westbrook would be breaking up. So then you have that. I mean, they were up 3-1 on the Warriors in the conference finals. And if if they had gotten there, I firmly believe that they would have won the title if they had made it. Like, I, I don't think it's like definite, but I think they would have been the favorites. So you have that. And also you have that Durant left for the single most egregious situation for Thunder fans. Like, if he had gone home like LeBron (laughs) did, that would have been fine. No, not only did he go to the best team in the league, he went to the best team in the league that beat them. And so you had all of that, the kind of the feelings of betrayal. Russ gave it his all. And yeah, I'm sure there are certain circumstances that would bother them. But I don't think it's I don't think it's possible for the circumstances to bother them more than with Durant. And then you have all the other ancillary stuff that he gave it his all won an MVP, probably not going to win a second. I think that Paul George's presence diminishes that possibility. But I mean, the MVP race is wide open this year. And so I don't I don't imagine that I think that he'll you know, there'll be some frustration, especially if like some of the circumstances that could surround him leaving, like the teams he goes to could be very frustrating for them, but not so much that they're going to look back on these last two years, what will be two years at that point and say, Hey, screw that guy or something like that. Yeah. Hey, on the MVP thing, I got a really interesting email, uh, from this ki- a guy named David uh, a couple of days ago, just trying to shout him out. He said it, the MVP race is over that Kawhi is now going to win it because of, he, of all the team ups like Harden and Paul are going to cancel each other out. Uh, Paul George and Westbrook cancel each other out. All the Warriors cancel each other out. And then LeBron and, uh, you know, kind of fading in his situation. Also kind of loading up with, uh, you know, their their big three where it kind of sets up Kawhi as like the one guy who's going to be on a really, really good team that doesn't have that level of kind of super team help. And it will turn him into this kind of almost a martyr, you know, for uh, for voters. I mean, I could really see that playing out that way, couldn't you? Absolutely. I, I said before the offseason that I thought he was the favorite to win it this year. He's also a phenomenal player. I mean, he's one of the three best guys in the league. And he now puts up the counting stats to combine with the defense. I mean, because you, now you have this case. If he's like, hey, he's one of the best offensive players in the league, and he's one of the best defensive players in the league. His team is really good. We'll see if the Spurs are, again, elite defensively. I mean, it was still so surprising that they finished the regular season. I think they were first in defense at the end of the regular season. The one count, The one thing that I would say to couch that is I feel like this is a year that could open the door for somebody just blowing up and just having a phenomenal year. And I'm not just necessarily saying somebody lower on the totem pole like Giannis, but just somebody having a year like Curry did in 15-16 and just annihilating everything and just being like, oh yeah, why did we forget, hey, this guy is really, really good. And that those sorts of possibilities, even with all the teammates they have, I think that those possibilities can't be ignored. Yeah, and I think we should probably come back and and think about both Curry and Durant too. I mean, I, I yes, they're on a super team, but if these guys are going to put up another seventy win season and one or both of them stays super healthy and they're setting records left and right, uh, that will open up the best player on the best team argument, which kind of fizzled last year just because of Durant's injury and and you know Curry kind of being under the radar. So. I'm not willing to just give the trophy to Kawhi, but I do think that's going to be a really powerful narrative that's not going to take very long to emerge uh, because you can just hear people saying right now, it's like, look who these guys have and, and Kawhi's carrying LaMarcus Aldridge. Like, you know, it just sets him up in this sort of superhero mold where, uh, you know, and also he's kind of due, you know, I mean, the, the fact that he's slowly worked his way into this conversation, worked up the totem poles, uh, kind of feels like it's his turn. 
uh, I could see all of that kind of coming together for him pretty well. Well, and the way the Spurs have handled this offseason, I will have to. I can't say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing because we need to see what they do with their remaining flexibility. Is that they've kind of set it up for that because they committed to Patty Mills, a wonderful player, but more of a low usage point guard. Tony Parker is going to be out at least for the first part of the season. Who knows how long he'll be out? And then probably Dejounte Murray is going to be their other one. So they're going to be putting a lot of their offense through Kawhi. So his usage is going to go up. His efficiency, if it stays remotely the same, is going to be quite good. I mean, he's a remarkably efficient guy. So I could totally see that argument for him. And if they end up doing something that's less conventional, I think that he will get the benefit of a lot of that. And I think that a narrative that could happen, you and I talked about how we're not sure whether the the, the Rockets and the Thunder and all those teams are going to beat the Spurs in the regular season. And that's another narrative that would work to Kawhi's benefit is if it, if you get into that point of, hey, look at all the all these teams added and they're still not better than the Spurs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, there's no question. I mean, if they're a 60 win team and they're the two seed that, you know, you're going to have this consistency of excellence uh, Spurs uh, kind of hype train, you know, building up. And uh, I, I could definitely see that. Um, so when you look at these top four, how would you how would you rank them in the West in terms of, you know, the the home court advantage seeds? I mean, obviously, Golden State one, I would assume. But who do you have at two, three, four right now? So I would lean right now. So we'll start with the regular season because I think regular season versus playoffs are two very different conversations with this group. And regular season, I think the Spurs are probably number two because they have no adjustment. You know, for the Rockets and for the Thunder, this is going to be a big shift. And with the Thunder, you could say, oh, well, they could be very similar to last year, except for the whole Paul George might not be cool with that element of this. And Oklahoma City's offense, even with Paul George, is probably still going to be inconsistent enough that they'll lose a couple of games that they shouldn't. It's just one of the one of the hallmarks of this team. Like you think about those Westbrook comebacks, and they're fabulous, but a lot of them were against bad teams. Like one of his definitive game was against the Magic. They were losing to the Magic in Orlando, and he had this big comeback, and they won. So For sure. those sorts of things are going to be there. The Spurs are just going to beat all the bad teams constantly, and then they'll you know they'll mix against the good ones. The X factor there is the Rockets because I think if it works, it'll work really quickly, and they actually have a fair amount of continuity in terms of system and all that. It's just going to be how quickly does CP buy in and all that. But I mean, their personnel turnover wasn't as big as I kind of thought it was going to be. If you had told me the Rockets got Chris Paul, I would have thought Ryan Anderson's probably gone, Patch Beverly, who is, but Nene's back, Capella's back. And they're also underrated guy in terms of all this. I'm, you know, I've been a fan of his forever. Clint Capella could have a truly special year this year for a guy with his skills. He's not going to be an all-NBA all guy to be, but like offensively, if he can get a little bit of that DeAndre Jordan in him, people could be like, oh my God, where where's this Clint Capella been? Because that's what Chris Paul does. Yeah, his life's going to be really, really easy. I mean, <laughs> it's going to be a dunk parade, no question. If I had to go one, two, three, four, I go Warriors, Spurs, Rockets, Thunder. I think the gap, the biggest gap is between the three and the four. I still think Oklahoma City is quite a bit um, behind Houston, but then I, see, if I we're think looking, the biggest gap is between one and two. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, sorry, I meant between two, three, and four. Okay. Um, yes, in Golden State, everything I said earlier about them expanding their lead over Cleveland is also completely true for uh, you know their matchup with with San Antonio, and I think that's part of the reason why San Antonio is just kind of taking it easy this summer. I don't think they're giving up. I don't think they're like completely punting. Uh, but I think that they're realizing that spending now or, or shaking things up or trying to add a superstar now 
it wouldn't be enough. Uh, I think which that's is, sort of guiding their decision. Why I'm a little bit surprised that there hasn't been as much murmuring about Aldridge other than what sounds like it's coming from Aldridge's people. Because if you feel that way, and it's, maybe they're just waiting for a team to actually make them a good offer, but if you feel that way, you don't necessarily need him to be to be that team. I mean, they would probably be worse in the regular season, but they could do that. But that, that's also an option during the during the season. You know, he becomes functionally an expiring contract. I think everybody expects him to opt out. So maybe they approach it in a different way. But if they're focusing on 2018, which is the right strategy for them, especially because Kawhi is so much younger than a lot of their guys, which gets lost in the shuffle a lot. Like Kawhi is, he's a lot younger than Patty Mills. He's a lot younger than Powell. I believe he's a couple years younger than LaMarcus. So if you want to build around him, you're probably turning over half or more of their roster. Yeah. And it it does seem like they've kind of just tied themselves to the Tony Parker thing uh, as well. It's like, they're not going to act like a ruthless organization at least that's the vibes that i'm getting and they're just going to sort of keep him in a fairly prominent role and keep paying him for as long as he wants to do it um and when you can continue to win 60 games with him kind of in the mix fine you know it's it's hard to argue against that but i do think that that kind of limits them uh, to a, a pretty meaningful degree in terms of like totally turning this into a Kawhi show um, as long as he's kind of there cashing, you know, eight figure checks, uh, they're not really going to be in that super uh, efficient, you know, super like ruthless uh, contender mode. Um, and I think that they're OK with that trade off. I mean, that's kind of how the San Antonio does business. It is. And I think they could come to him if he wants to come back for 1819. They could come back to him and say, hey, you can come back, but it's going to be at a lower salary. It's going to be at a reduced role. And I think he'd be cool with that. And this could also be the year, depending on how his recovery goes, he'll turn 36 during the playoffs where they could where they could end up if he doesn't come back as as he's hoping just do the combined goodbye for Manu and for Tony. Though I think Manu's just going to keep playing it by ear at the end of every season. That's just the <laughs> way it feels. But like this could be the like really the the final hurrah for for those teams, and then it becomes the transition, kind of like from David to Tim, of another another kind of ilk of of great Spurs teams. So uh, on a scale of one to ten, how badly do you want to see the banana boat? Like ten being you're you're dying for it, one being you don't care. Well, I think that the banana boat, all four of them together, I actually don't think that team is as competitive as some other combinations of it with players. So, like for example, if you could give me Chris Paul and LeBron on the Lakers, <laughs> yep, in, without the other two, or if the other two take mid level or something like that, of course that's fine. That team, I think, would be better than all four of those guys and like some fifth guy somewhere else. You know, like that's just it's just I don't think because they're all so ball dominant and their jump shots are are waning with time that I think, you know, other than LeBron, who for whatever reason just keeps shooting better because he's a robot. But (laughs) I think that it would be it would be problematic, but it would be so much fun. Like basically to me, they would become a really fun sideshow that has a lot of upside. You know, like, I'm not going to write off their possibility of winning a title together because, A, that team has LeBron James and Chris Paul, and, you know, there's it's just, there's so much talent in that foursome. And also, you'd be sliding Mello and Wade into roles that are more condu- more fitting with their current talent level. And, they, yeah, so, and with guys they would actually defer to for the, yeah, so, for the first time in a while. I think, in general, of the concept, the excitement factor for me, it's like a 6 out of 10. 
However, if we can get the banana boat in San Antonio with Kauai, I'm now up to like a 10 or 11. Oh, or then it becomes 12. like a 15. Yeah. Because be- that's that's how good a team has to be to, to challenge the Warriors. Yeah. And like, I think that could be a real thing. Like, yes, Melo and, Car- uh, and Wade are sort of tack-ons here. But if your big three next summer is like Aldridge is out of the way, uh, Manu retires, your big three is Kawhi, a handsomely uh, taken care of contract-wise LeBron and Chris Paul maybe sacrificing a little bit. And then you've got Wade and Melo on uh, cheaper contracts with some of the other assorted uh, role guys, you know, kind of always hanging around San Antonio. That is an awesome two seed in the West for the following year. That is something that I'm super duper excited. And I would want to watch every single game they play just to see how Pop uses these guys uh, and to see how, you know, Kawhi and, and LeBron play together. This is a dream scenario, granted, but this is the dream scenario that I've got for the future. Because I, otherwise, I don't know how we put together a team that's really that interesting uh, to keep up with Golden State. So that ties in with something that I'd been thinking about a lot, which was for the hot minute where it looked like both LA teams were going to have a bunch of cap space next year. I had started thinking about how all those dominoes were going to shake out. I th- oh, I didn't talk with you. I talked with Bontemps about this. And so basically my idea was there were four max slots between the Lakers and Clippers before they re-signed Blake and Gallo and all that stuff. So I was thinking there going, okay, so depending on what happens, you know, there are probably like six or seven guys that are available for those slots. And I started thinking about, well, how do they fit? How do they prioritize? And remember, it's not only the guys that we've discussed. DeMarcus Cousins could be a possibility for one of those max slots. There are numerous other guys that could potentially fit in. And so I was starting to think about, well, how is this going to go? And what happened was when now the Clippers are basically out of that for reasons that are very frustrating to me, it really, the, the places with max spots that are actually potentially competitive teams, it's basically San Antonio and the Lakers. And both of those have their own selling points. But I think that opens the door for some truly fun possibilities, depending on who moves and who wants to stow together. And I think this is going to be a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily involve the GMs. It's going to be these players just figuring out how they want to configure this. For sure. How are you feeling about Lakers management uh, a couple months in? It seems like the competence has been restored. Mostly. I, I think that they gave up too much to get rid of Mozgov's contract. You know, it's like it's this it's this weird circumstance with that trade. Uh, I've thought about it a lot because it's so unusual because it it's not a salary dump, you know, because they, you know, they dumped salary. Of course, that was a big part of it. But they also got back a first round pick and a really good player. So you can, it's not fair to, to discount the Brook Lopez and the first round pick part of this and just say, hey, they paid off. They paid D'Angelo Russell to dump Mozgov's contract. So you have all that. But then at the same point, the present value of Brook Lopez on this Lakers team is extremely limited, especially when you basically say it's impossible to resign it because they're using this money unless basically everybody says no. And in that case, you basically have the same option that was going to be there before. Lopez, a California kid, I think was born in L- in the LA area and then grew up in Fresno. So I think he would be amenable to that if the Lakers ever had the money. So I think they've been better. It's hard to be worse. But the rubber is going to meet the road, not necessarily with the max guys they try to get next season, but with how they handle trying to clear the space. Because Jordan Clarkson, Julius Randle, and well, dang, they're probably going to lose two out of those three in order to make it if they want to get two max spots, which I absolutely think they should do. How much they have to give up to do that is a huge, huge, huge question. Yeah, and I trust these guys to make those calls, though. I mean, I think the 
the D'Angelo Russell trade to me, it's like pretty cutthroat. Uh, that's not the type of move that you make if you drafted a kid, you know, like emotions just factor into it and you're afraid to, to admit your mistake. I, I love that they did it. Uh, I didn't have a lot of faith in him. I didn't think it was going to work between him and Ball. I think he could potentially uh, turn his career around somewhere else. It just wasn't going to happen in L.A. I think there was just already too much. They had already kind of spoiled him uh, in that situation with the coaching issues, uh, with uh, just the market and all the other distractions that go along with it. Uh, he needed a fresh start for him, uh, and I think they needed a fresh start from him. So to be able to aggressively pull that trigger, not look back, take whatever you know, backlash there might be from his fans, uh, and move forward with you know real clarity around Lonzo, to me, was great management. And uh, again, it wasn't going to happen if they hadn't made that you know front office change, uh, you know, back in February. So uh, I think, for, as an observer and a local observer here in LA of of the Lakers, the competence is definitely up. The fact that they're in this mix for Paul George and they didn't sell the farm to get him, uh, I think that's you know a pretty good sign. Um, you know, you could see this alternate reality where all the uh, Lakers young prospects go for Paul George if you know Jim Buss is still making the call. So that's um, that's good to see. Uh, and then going forward, like you're saying, they're going to have better flexibility next summer. And I think that they're going to be back to being a destination. They're going to get some positive buzz off the Lonzo season. Uh, they're going to have another year. They can sell uh, like, you know, Brandon Ingram's growth. I mean, obviously, he's going to be much better in year two than he was in year one. That's going to help them build some momentum. And uh, I think they're going to be you know much more in the mix for main guys next year than they were at any point here, uh, basically since sort of like Kobe Bryant's twilight. Lonzo Ball also creates a much more flexible option for building a talented team. So I've said before that, and I've watched a lot of Lonzo Ball, is that he might actually, in many ways, be a natural too. So he, because he can move the ball so well, and I'm not sure that he's going to be great creating in the pick and roll because of his weird jump shot that he might not be able, they, teams might be able to take that away from him, at least until he reforms it a little bit, but he can run it in transition. He can do a lot of other stuff. So what that means that from a practical standpoint is you can add a lot of different pieces around him and it will make sense. And that's exactly what you want if you're the Lakers. And really to a point, Brandon Ingram is the same thing because we don't really know what the heck he is right now. So with Ingram, you can just say, okay, you want to get a power forward, then Brandon Ingram's a three now. If you get a three, then he's a four now. You can go in a lot of different directions with that. And so really, when I, if I'm the Lakers, what I'm kind of thinking is we can get any two guys and we're going to focus on getting the best ones possible. And they can think about that in the near term. They can think about that in the long term. It's challenging. You know, like I, to me, as even though he's going to be 33 years old, I think LeBron is still a one just because he's I think he's still the best player in the world and he might not have that title a year from now. They'll have to figure that out, but they're going to have a lot of these options. And I also think that a lot of it is going to be, as I kind of said before, a lot of it is going to be picked for them. So they're going to but they're going to have to kind of put their finger in into this and just say, hey, this is kind of where we're thinking. But they're probably going to get some really good options. Yeah. Hey, you're going to be in summer league, right? Yes. Is Brandon Ingram at or near the top of your list of guys that you're excited to see? To me, I think he might be number one. I mean, I, I haven't seen Lonzo, especially in person, nearly as much as you have. So he's way up there, too. Um, but in terms of like just checking in on guys, I think Ingram might be number one on my list. Yeah, uh, of guys that are well, also consider I'm in, I'm recording this in Salt Lake City right now. I just saw Markel and Jason Tatum. Oh, so they're not as high on my list now as they were a week ago. So yeah, I would say Ingram and Lonzo are both really high on that list. And 
also for me, just because I'm a, a big fan of Dennis Smith, Dennis Smith is going to be one of the few guys who has the possibility of starting on a good team this year. Like that's not really a common thread for a rookie. Like Malik Monk is going to play on a good team, but he's going to be a backup. And, you know, unless he really kicks ass and then he moves into the starting lineup. But Ingram and Lonzo, their success, as crazy as this sounds, their success in summer league might affect the arc of the NBA for the next like five years. Because, <laughs> because yeah. that's what happens when you play for the Lakers. And I remember... Back, uh, I think it was Bob Vogaris tweeted out something about like which team, this was a year or two ago, he said, which team that did not make the playoffs is most likely to win the title. And a bunch of people were saying, and this is going to, I'm sorry to add salt to the wound of the city I'm in right now. And a lot of people were saying the Jazz, because that was the year where they just missed the playoffs. And I said the Lakers. And the reason I said the Lakers is partially as a Northern California kid, my theory that things always work out for them. And I think that's going to be true. But those guys need to show that they are affirmative parts of that, as opposed to being parts that can be moved to accommodate that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, Ingram had a real big ceiling, right? When he came in and that's why they drafted him. I mean, there was, uh, you know, thought that he was sort of this prototypical forward scoring guy who, who's going to be able to get there. Uh, we didn't see a lot of it. We just saw so much struggles during his rookie year. I mean, everything looked difficult. Maybe he came on a little bit towards the end, but you know, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, it was just a really tough road. So how does he have chemistry with, with Lonzo from day one? I mean, are those two guys just natural fit? And then if so, is he able to unlock this really fun, really exciting, really athletic and multidimensional type game that everybody was hoping for out of college? If he's able to do it and he's just like dominating summer league, which is totally a possibility, you're right. I mean, the hype's going to go crazy right off the top. Uh, you know, maybe Lonzo winds up kind of wedging his way into a lot of that hype just because uh, he's got the profile thanks to his father's, uh, you know, amazing marketing ability. Um, but the idea of like these guys actually have a, a core, which <clears throat> to me hasn't been there these last couple of years. They had young pieces, but that wasn't really a core. Uh, if we come out of summer league in two weeks and we're saying, look, Lonzo and Ingram, that is the basis of a future playoff team, a future, uh, you know, contender three, four, five, six years down the line that uh, to me, I can see that happening. I can definitely kind of envision that. Uh, but I can also see that being the type of thing that you're saying, which has huge repercussions for free agency next summer uh, and for you know some of these superstars who are looking to you know find a nice landing spot. Before we move on, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. At this point in my life, I am not in the position to really filter through and try to find new employees, but that was a really big stress point in a lot of my prior jobs. And I wish that something like ZipRecruiter had been around at that point to really help it out. And the reason why is because you don't have to worry about posting a job all over, worrying about all of the different things that can go wrong when you're trying to find a new employee with ZipRecruiter. It posts to 100-plus job sites with one click, and then what makes them special to me is that it finds the candidates. So over 80% of the jobs that are posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And then, for those of you who've done this before, the next stage is always, well, who among the people that we have is best. And with ZipRecruiter, you can also use their dashboard to screen, rate, and manage candidates. So all of the pieces that used to be so hard to maintain, to keep track of, with trying to find your next great employee, you can do with ZipRecruiter and it just reduces the stress to a pretty amazing level. And the other thing I really like about ZipRecruiter in terms of their promotion with us is that it's free to try. So you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan, S-P-O-R-T-S-F-A-N, sportsfan, 
and you can post jobs for free. You can see how it works for you. I, I've been very impressed with their interface. I originally dealt with it, of course, as an employee, actually, um, when I was trying to try and find jobs before I found what I do now. And it was a wonderful interface, and I was really impressed with it. And then the employer side is even more robust because it has to be, because you have to filter through candidates and everything like that. So again, you check it out, ziprecruiter.com slash sportsfan. Now back to the conversation with Ben Golver. It's pretty amazing. Granted, the two of us can often get on LA tangents just because of our, our not geographic stuff, just the way we think about the league. We've gone through this entire podcast so far without talking really without, about Jimmy Butler or Gordon Hayward, two other all-star, all-NBA caliber players who changed, who changed cities in the last week. Um, yeah, so you know, in terms of the Jimmy thing, uh, to me, Tibbs' interest like never waned, right? So it was kind of a matter of like when, not if, if that makes sense. Like there was, it was kind of always going to happen. Uh, but the question also was just like the terms of the return package. Like how much was he willing to give up to make this thing a reality? And like even you saw with the Taj Gibson contract, I mean, to me that was, I think it's fair to say like overly generous. I mean, not insanely terrible, but you know, probably more than it needed to be to get him. And I guess one of my concerns with you know, Tibbs being in that role in Minnesota was like he was just going to throw everything at his favorite guys, Jimmy being up there, Taj being up there. And then the worst case scenario would have been Rose. And it seems like he's resisted that at least. So that's good. Um, but if you're a Minnesota fan, I think you've just got to be elated in terms of the, the departing package, uh, what was involved in it, uh, how little it's going to wind up affecting uh, their ability to to win next season. I mean, they, I think Jimmy comes in and boosts them into the playoff picture in the West. And the pieces that went out, there's not a lot of you know slide back uh, in terms of uh, the immediate impact on winning, if that makes sense. And so uh, for Minnesota, their duo, you know, Jimmy and Towns, and I think Wiggins still has to kind of prove it here. And I think I hope his response to the addition of Jimmy is to model everything that Jimmy does off the court uh, because he needs to get more serious about his game and more serious about uh, progressing and and filling out what he's able to do. He definitely needs to get a lot more serious on the defensive end in, in terms of his impact there, uh, especially off the ball too. So uh, he can learn a lot. Hopefully he responds to this development well. Uh, hopefully you know Thibodeau just kind of locks those two guys together uh, during training camp and uh, you know, all of a sudden they've got kind of a cloned Butler, you know, in two years down the road. I mean, that would be the best case scenario. Uh, but the the Butler Towns duo to me, that stacks up pretty well with almost any duo that we've been talking about, whether it's, you know, Westbrook and, and George or, or Harden and, and Paul. I mean, to me, I might rather have Towns and, and Butler uh, in terms of their positional complements and, and their skills than those other two duos that we spent so much time talking about earlier. It's true, especially because Towns has so much more room to grow. I, I think there's a very legitimate chance that he is the best guy in the league two years from now. Probably more in the three to four year range, just because it always takes time to figure it out. And that gives more time for the other great players to age out of their primes. But he's special in that way. And I, th I think he's offensively, his ability with the ball in his hands is very underappreciated. I'm not sure Tibbs is going to use it that much. But I think the biggest, you call it a frustration in certain ways, in other ways it's a positive, about this offseason has been the idea that, for me, on the personnel side, Tigers haven't changed their stripes. So Tibbs got an absolute heist there, and he had the possibility of 
making a, a really interesting team that could maximize. Like if you think about even if even if you're treating Wiggins as a cons- as being a part of this future definitively, and if I were if I were running the team and had full control, I'm not necessarily saying that. Even though he has a sky high ceiling, just because I think he's a little bit duplicative of Jimmy, that they could work out really well. But I, w- I would want to see how it goes. Anyway, that's an aside. Tibbs then went back to his old stalwarts, got Taj Gibson, a very talented player, but another big in their army of bigs. And then Teague is a, a good player, but he doesn't really shoot that many threes. He, do- he doesn't really fit that kind of new age NBA. And so I had this little fleeting hope with him that he was going to take the year where he kind of went around the league and learned from a bunch of different coaches and realize the way that I played is that out- I-, I did this was outdated. I need to move into the future while incorporating my philosophies, but just in a different approach, kind of like Pop did after they lost to the Suns. Go in that direction. And basically what he what he d- d- said was, nah, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. He leaned back on what he trusts, which is a very common coaching thing. Um, and, you know, now he's got the horses, so maybe it will work a little bit better. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think we should underrate Jimmy here. I mean, his his advanced stats last year were insane. Uh, and he was carrying a really bad, ill-fitting roster around him. I mean, their on-off numbers in Chicago with and without him were just insane. I mean, they were like Brooklyn bad without him, uh, and they were still able to squeak into the playoffs with him. So now you're giving him some real talent to work with. I'm not the world's biggest Teague fan either, but he's a heck of a lot better than Chicago's point guard options last year. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking Minnesota makes the playoffs. I know there was a, a whole like secondary arms race between like Denver and Minnesota and even Sacramento, like some of these teams that were on the outside looking in last year, trying to boost them their way in to like the six, seven, eight range. Uh, but I'm pretty confident once things shake out that all of the hype that was building around Minnesota last year will be much more appropriate this year. I agree with that. Uh, I want to continue with the Tiger changing its stripes theme. I'll go back to the West playoff picture in a second. But I think that's also what frustrated me so much about some of the star trades that happened was in the Chicago move, Chicago got back a bad collection of assets for the talent that Jimmy Butler is, partially because they were impatient. I mean, he has two more years under contract. It's not like they had to. This wasn't a Paul George situation where you have to get something for him before he's gone. And because they have a front office that has an outdated, flawed way of thinking about the league. And I hated that trade also because it didn't incorporate new information. So Chris Dunn, talented player. A lot of guys were really high on him in the draft, and that's justified. I wasn't as high on him at that point. I actually really liked him, I think it was after his sophomore year, where I I thought the point guard stuff was going to come together. I didn't like him as much then. So you have all that, but they didn't trade for Chris Dunn in 2016. They traded for him in 2017 after he had a disappointing season where a lot of the stuff that you hoped would work didn't. His defensive potential is still there, but the idea that he's going to run a successful offense is a much harder case to make now than it was a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I still think he's got a chance to be good. Uh, I liked him coming into the draft. I loved him during the brief flashes of Summer League last year. Against that level of competition, like his size and physical tools like really showed out. Uh, He didn't get a chance to really show that as a rookie, though. Um, I just think you got to be wary if you're Chicago and he is that available in a trade, right? Like, shouldn't that make you a little bit second guessing? Like, what's, what's happening here? Like, why are they so quick to part with him? Uh, and to me, like the other pieces in that trade all kind of had big question marks too. whether it's Levine and and Markinen, all of them. I mean, 
I just don't see what Chicago is trying to put together at all here. I mean, do you think that these pieces fit cohesively? Or are they just trying to make the worst possible team? I mean, why hasn't uh, Wade been you know, bought out? I mean, that seems like that should be a move that happens. But, you know, Chicago is probably going to drag that one along and try to squeeze him for money. Um, I don't know. I mean, okay, I think so if I was a Bull, if I was a Bulls fan, I'd be really cynical and really turned off by the entire chain of events. Right, and this goes into an idea that I've had for a long time, which is if, if a team needs to rebuild, why are they going to keep the same GM that caused them to tear it apart in the first place? You know, this isn't a circumstance where you brought in, like, Kiki Vandaway, and Vandaway is put in the spot and says, hey, we need to rebuild this team. Like, those sorts of circumstances happen, of course. This is Garpax building a team that was massively messed up and losing that for flawed people. And now you're saying, hey, great, now we're going to have a bunch of cap space and all this kind of stuff. Like, let's keep the same guys doing it who who basically destroyed what was a good team. And that's a, a, a flawed decision. And the point with, with Levine, and I've gotten a lot of crap with him, which is funny, another Bruin, that needs to be made here is, one, the ACL issue. You know, we don't know exactly what he's going to be. And two, he's about to get properly paid. A big part of what makes successful NBA teams is having guys that are assets on their contracts. Boston is probably the single best example of this. That's how they were able to make Gordon Hayward happen this summer, was that they have all these guys on below market contracts, most of which because they signed before the cap spike, and also because Danny Ainge did a really nice job negotiating. I mean, Jay Crowder's contract, even though I'm not as high on him as a player as I used to be, his contract is still one of the best in the league. And they they can do that in that way. But those kind of things aren't going to happen as much anymore unless the restricted market gets really tempered. And so I just don't get where the bulls are going and a cohesive theory of it. And their circumstances so messed up that you're they might, you know, maybe they'll pull a max guy or something next summer. But they're not making much of an affirmative pitch at this point other than we're offering you a bunch of money and Chicago's a good place to live. Yeah, so they went from having Jimmy Butler on one of the league's better contracts for a star player to potentially having Zach Levine on a, a very absurdly expensive contract given his flaws as a player in you know two years flat. So congratulations. Good job, Garpax. We're really looking forward to that era. And then that same story continues with the Paul George trade. So Paul George, it's, it's a couple of different things. And I know a lot of people are killing Danny Ainge. And I think that there was a big tactile mistake he made but I'm not sure it's the same one that a lot of people saw, which is that he was playing it close to the vest with the idea that there was a longer time frame to make a deal. And so the idea of playing it close to the vest and then just improving your offers, and then by the time you get there, because they had more than anybody else. And, you know, it's the old like Milton Burrow pull out just enough to win type of deal. Like that's certainly true there. But the problem was he misread how desperate, for whatever reason, Kevin Pritchard was to move him early. And so Pritchard, in the same way that other teams could have made what I would consider a better offer for Jimmy Butler, he accepted a really flawed offer for for Paul George. And a lot of that goes back to them overvaluing Victor Oladipo, who is already properly or even overpaid and treating him as an asset and and, Muddy, and not Muddy Unis, uh, Sabonis, different, different Euro big. And he just misread the room. Ainge misread the room by thinking that his counterpart was a rational actor. And that was a mistake. Yeah. When I look at uh, Indiana, it's so hard to mount a defense for what they wound up coming away with. Like the, the argument that I've heard more than any other is that they just really love Victor Oladipo. Like that's kind of what motivated this, which is so strange. He seems like he's a hard player to love in general, and he's definitely a hard player to love at his contract number. 
Uh, Sabonis, I don't think anyone's ever really seen like big time upside for him. I mean, he can be a solid, probably third big and, and maybe a spot starter and your rotation. But, you know, we don't see like star potential from him there and no picks. It's just very, very difficult to see what motivated them uh, to act the way they did. So I'm not necessarily like going to let Ainge off the hook for that. Uh, because it was an unusual decision by Indiana, to say the least. Um, but I do think there should have been some level of communication between Boston and Indiana, which was like, look, before you are ready to pull the trigger, like come back to us, uh, give us time to to work through Hayward. We've got enough assets, enough picks to blow you away to beat any offer. That seems like it should have happened. And th- the fact that the trade uh, got consummated when it did suggests to me that Boston just didn't uh, want Paul George as much in private as we all assume they did in public. So, uh, you know, I guess I tend to believe that Indiana took what they thought was going to be the best offer they were ever going to get for Paul. I think the decision to trade him early was the right one. Uh, I just kind of question the package and and the motivation behind why they believe that's the package. I mean, if they're just playing the hometown angle of, yeah, he's a big IU star, fans will like him, he's a hardworking guy. Uh, to me, that's really tough. And it is also possible that you know coming off of this era where they've had so much roster turnover, and you know David West left, and Roy Hibbert had to go, and Lance left, and then came back. Now Paul George is gone. Like their whole team has really you know turned over so quickly like even Monta Ellis now has you know been waived it could just be that they wanted guys they knew were going to be in town like you can count on Oladipo playing out that contract where is he going to go you can count on Sabonis being there because he's on the rookie deal and and maybe they were just so desperate to have kind of building blocks to kind of keep a, a core group around Miles Turner together to kind of grow with him that they decided, look, we don't even care if we're getting, you know, real plus talents back. We just want guys who are going to be here. If that was their conclusion, uh, again, that's kind of tough to swallow, but maybe it's a little bit easier to see where they were coming from. It's even harder because a lot of what they could have gotten back were draft assets, which have exactly the same certainty. I mean, other than having to actually make the picks, and I wasn't the biggest fan of TJ Leaf, just somebody who, another guy that I I know reasonably well. But yeah, they're going to have to figure this out. And I worry that if they're if they underperform relative to expectations, really the only way that they're going to get better is unless they overpay for agents is by drafting really well, and they're going to have to do that. And who knows? Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But they're in a tough spot. And like Nate Duncan and I on Dunked on a couple of days ago, spontaneously we went through the Eastern Conference and basically said, what if these teams has a a realistic shot? Like basically that you can see a reasonable path for them to win 55 games, like make a conference final. So like become a very good team. And there are probably about seven or eight, maybe even closer to 10 teams in that conference that right now it's really hard to see that. And sure, the the draft will help some of those inevitably, but it won't help everybody. It won't fix all of these problems. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think if I'm Larry Bird, I'm glad he's out. You know, I mean, he, he made the right call to bounce and, you know, sometimes some of these decisions for these teams trading stars, uh, it really boils down to kind of like stubbornness in the front office. I mean, I think that's really what happened in Chicago. I think those guys were just like, we can't make it work with Jimmy's personality. We're going to choose Fred over Jimmy. Now let's just auction him off. In Indiana, I think their decision was um, we gave everything we had. We tried and failed multiple times to retool this thing around Paul George. Uh, now he's about to leave us hanging out to dry. And in Larry Bird's case, it was like he just went home. He took his ball and went home. And so 
uh, that didn't put necessarily his successor in, in the best negotiating position, I don't think. And they, they certainly missed some opportunities along the way. I think both those teams did to get a greater return in the trade. Uh, I guess if if we're looking, though, in like alternative history, how could they have played these things better? Um, do we have any examples of real success stories? Like even like the Chris Paul situation where he yes, was. OK, well, let's hear him. Darren Williams. OK. Darren Williams, they kind of saw that the writing was on the wall. They traded him. It was That was a year and a half, right? That was a year and a half before he was going to be a free agent. And, I believe so. And they got a great return. Mello, well, the Mello, but but the, the funny thing about Mello, I was talking about this with Sean Hyken when he was working on a piece about the Jimmy Butler trade, comparing it with other star trades. There's something else that you see as a common thread between those two trades is it was major market teams that were more desperate than they should have been. But really, I think that's the secret to trading in the NBA now is just trade with somebody who's not who's desperate or who's not good at their job. You know, like when you look at the best and the worst trades in the NBA, they almost all fit this realm of it's like a good GM, a capable guy trading with someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Like the Bargnani trade, that was Masai Ujiri against the messed up Knicks. Or the Serge Ibaka trade was Rob Hennigan trying to save his job, Sam Presti doing a magnificent job. Like all of them are this same basic pattern. You don't really see those heists with the good teams. And maybe that's a part of the problem with some of these is just that more there are more competent GMs out there. Yeah, I think also the players have kind of wisened up and they're playing a bigger role and True. they're not allowing themselves to be traded to those, you know, backwaters or those, you know, horrible franchises. And maybe they've realized that market isn't necessarily as important in some cases as, you know, structure of the organization and talent assembled and fit and all of those things as well. So, uh, I mean, what did you think of the Chris Paul return? I thought that was, you know, not terrible for the Clippers. I mean, if we had rewinded a month and said, you know, Chris Paul is going to be gone. What do the Clippers look like? It could look a lot worse than where they're at right now. At the same time, I don't totally love where they're at right now. Um, but the fact that they were able to get that deal together to me was a sign of um, of pretty good management. I thought it was a fabulous deal for the Clippers, which is why I got so frustrated with what happened next, because I thought that what they, first of all, I believe that the package they got back was better than what what Indy got for George or what Chicago got for Butler, which is incredible considering the circumstances are so different. I mean, it was basically like he left, kind of like he left as a free agent. And I'm not saying Maury did a bad job. They're, the Rockets are still an unbelievable team. It was just a very different circumstance. And I think they, they wanted to get it done with this, like, basically eight-hour time clock or something like that. And so to me, what that did is it set the table for them to really transform this team. My assumption had been that, you know, like, maybe DeAndre stays, maybe DeAndre leaves. You kind of want to treat that as a fungible piece. So now you have all these cheap guys that are on reasonable contracts, Patrick Beverly, Decker, Lou Williams, and a bunch of cap space. So, hey, play the 2018 game. Like, you guys are going to be a really desirable market. You Maybe maybe you're not going to get the best guys because maybe those guys will go to L.A., maybe to San Antonio. But there are so many on the market then that you can do well. Instead, the Doc Rivers did a Doc Rivers thing. He committed to guys that he kind of knew could work and that he knew would fit into their system in Blake, which I'm sure was also a Balmer move, and then Danilo Gaonari. Yeah, I think the pressure is going to be on Coach Doc a lot now, don't you? Um, I mean, Chris, to me, was always a crutch, right? Like, it was really hard to screw I mean, but, up. And, but GM and, Doc has been, Rock Divers, as, as we use it, has been <laughs> selling Coach Doc down the river for years now. I mean, that's yeah. basically been a part of their story. 
No, for sure. But I think now you don't have the the crutch, which is Chris, right? Like you can make a lot of mistakes and still win 50 games when Chris is your point guard. So I think LA's season next year, really, to me, like, I don't know if Doc's on the hot seat, but I think that's, you know, he's he's heading there um, because he doesn't have Chris anymore. Uh, if Blake gets injured for any stretch of time, and you know that's a fairly safe assumption at this point, uh, they're going to be pretty talent deficient, and they don't have the types of personalities to really step up and carry a team through to a, a quality playoff position uh, anymore. So if things go perfectly well for the Clippers, you know, I can see uh, you know them skating to like the fifth seed, right? If things don't go well, I think it could head south like pretty quickly. There's a lot of variance in this team that that wasn't there previously. And that's why I see more pressure on 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 Doc Rivers. Do you want to do some live reaction? Something just hit my something just hit my radar. And I think those are always fun to do on a podcast that's not usually time sensitive. Let's do it. Dirk Nowitzki. Two years, $10 million, second year team option. Well, <laughs> they've got some sort of backhanded deal going on down there in Dallas, don't they? I mean, this guy's been, uh, I guess he had the one big parachute year, but I also feel like he's been really doing them a lot of favors. Um, for whatever reason, I haven't found this Dirk Twilight to be as fun or as engrossing as some of the other ones that have happened. Uh, maybe... I mean, the Kobe one was uglier for sure in terms of on the court. But what is Dallas even doing next year? Like, I guess you welcome him back and, you know, you get the 20 seasons and uh, you pay him respect. I mean, certainly he can still go out there and play. Uh, but that seems like one of the least relevant teams in the Western Conference at this point. Uh, do you agree or disagree? I had high hopes. I had them in the mock-off season we did for Dunked On, and I was a little bit more proactive with them. Got a similar deal, actually, with Dirk. But... That market is pretty much dried up now. My theory with them, actually, is that they could be big players in 2018. Like, they could see this market really thinning out. And even if they pay Nerlens, which it looks like they will, that they could just have a bunch of money and and actually have players that are interested. I mean, they've been burned pretty recently before. But Dallas is also a victim of being in the wrong conference at the wrong time. You know, like, I, last year, to a point, also they had that horrendous start to the year. If this year, if they were in the East, they'd be a playoff team. They might even be like the sixth seed. But in the West, unless they get, I don't even know who that difference maker is that's left on the board. Unless they get that huge difference maker, they're going to be a fun team on the outside looking in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we can say that about a lot of these teams. I mean, you, you might have 12 teams in the West that, it, you know, if there was no conference alignment, you might have, you know, 12 West teams and four East teams in the playoffs. And to me, that's a problem. It's been a problem. I'm not sure I'm ready to like I've advocated in the past just sort of to get the conversation going that they should get rid of uh, the conference alignments and just take the top 16 teams. Um, you, you, know, I don't you know my opinion on this, right? What's that? I've been top 16 since 2010. I put it out and then I have the more revolutionary idea that teams should also the top team should be able to choose their opponents. And what and that probably won't happen though it did happen in the D League a few years ago which was really fun, but the other frustrating part about it I guess it's maybe also being a West Coast person is that people say oh well what about the travel and I say the Western Conference already has that travel it's just that the East doesn't you can and we have had series of a team in the Pacific time zone playing Memphis playing New Orleans like that's not that different from a team playing Charlotte from a team playing the Knicks so it would be hard. And there would be logistical challenges with it. But I just think 
I, I think that it's the most fair way to do it also just because it creates a better product and it creates a much greater incentive for teams to fight throughout the regular season. I mean, you're not going to see teams, good teams, coast late if they know the differences are that stark. But in the current system, they can game it a little bit, and then there are also the incentives are lower. Look at what Cleveland did. Cleveland, yeah, they pushed after the All-Star game, but at the end, they're just like, eh, whatever. Yeah, which of these teams do you see as being playoff teams like in the top 16, right? Atlanta, no. Indiana, no. Chicago, no. Miami, I don't. You know, none of the other teams that were in the lottery last year in the East, I guess the one maybe would be Milwaukee. Um, and they, they might be able to squeeze in there to go along with Washington, Toronto. OK, uh, yeah. So and, let's and Cleveland. Let, let's be unambiguous about this. So Cleveland, Boston and and I would say Toronto, barring injuries, are in like though they would make a top 16. I feel that Washington would also be in. I feel pretty comfortable about that. I think, of course, health permitting, that they, they would be important. And then everybody else is, there are some possibles, like significantly possibles. I would say the Bucks would have a decent chance. Miami would have a decent chance. But I wouldn't feel definite at all. And But the most more impressive part of it is how many teams would basically be out. It's like Orlando, Brooklyn, in that circumstance, probably Philly, unless Joel Embiid plays the Knicks. Like they're just a bunch, Indiana, Chicago, like basically half the Eastern Conference is out on, almost half of it is out on day one. Yeah, no question about it. And if you flip that and go to the West, like how many teams are definitely out? I think you can say Phoenix, LA, I'd put the Kings in there. Um, but you could probably make a case that everybody else deserves to at least be considered. Yeah, like uh, like Dallas would probably be in the same group for me with like Philly, where it's it's an outside chance if everything goes right. I, I, th- I like Philly's upside better, but their injury history is so much more terrifying. And they also like Rick Carlisle. I just always give his teams a three or four game bump over where I think their talent level is. So that that might put them in the range. Yeah, I also think, you know, we've talked about uh, disparities, other disparities for all stars. I think the the all star ballot should eliminate all positions. I think we're, we are at that point where we shouldn't say even front court and guards. I think we should just go, you know, everybody's the same. And I also think that we should eliminate conferences, too. Uh, from the all-star game at least for next year i think you should just your ballot should be to vote for your top 10 guys uh and then figure out how to divvy them up once they've been selected and once the coaches have sort of filled out the rosters uh but to me that is really going to be a joke because i think i actually did this as a thought experiment i put together a first team all-star team for the west and a second team all-star team for the west and i think the west second team at this point one to twelve would beat the east's first team one to twelve uh that when you're tying things like contracts and other things uh, to that kind of a recognition, uh, I think we just need to scrap the conferences from there. I can understand why the playoffs, it might be more of a holy grail. You don't want to touch them and and mess up with the history. But for something like the All-Star game, I mean, it's definitely time to get rid of conferences and get rid of positions. Right. And I've made that more of a focus now just because I think the playoff thing is is not going to change in the near term. But All-Star, they totally should. And it, it doesn't affect, thankfully, now the designated veteran, designated rookie stuff. They took that out, which is great. They they absolutely should have done that. But it still matters. I mean, it's a part of legacies. It's a part of the Hall of Fame considerations for most of these guys. And so that stuff matters. You know, I I don't think we should ever discount even if the game almost always is terrible. We shouldn't discount the importance of being an all-star. And I mean, think about the the probably the poster child of this. Well, there will be a better poster child this year because we're going to see some great players miss the game. But Mike Conley. Mike Conley now is basically locked in to being the greatest player in NBA history to not make an all-star game. And yeah, that's a for shame. Sure. Well, and I'll look at another way, too. Like, does it indirectly affect contracts? So let's take a guy like Drew Holiday right now. Of course, he's negotiating against one of these idiots that you've mentioned uh, 
uh, who, you know, you're always trying to get into a trade scenario or if you're an agent, you're always trying to kind of get him into a contract talk. Does Drew Holiday get the contract this summer that he got from New Orleans, even though they were desperate and over a barrel and had to pay him and didn't have any other options, if he never makes that one all-star team, right? Like, don't you think that inflates his value in that conversation because they can say, look, one healthy, he was an all-star. And it just gives you this certain level uh, of negotiating. It's like a benchmark. You know, it's like, well, you're you're paying for an all-star. This is what you're going to have to pay. Uh, That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. But it seems like to me that kind of thing does wind up factoring into where these dollar figures come down. It certainly does. And it also affects things like I'm sure part of the reason teams do that is because they can sell that to their fans. Like, hey, look, this guy made an all-star game and he's young and he's he's good. And also uh, Drew Holiday is kind of a complicated circumstance just because he had that team so severely over a barrel. And they have such a long history of trading picks that that was basically their only other option if they lost him. So even though the point guard market has thinned out, I guess they could have brought back Darren Collison, which would have been kind of fun. But it is a good point, and I think that there are a lot of these other like less direct, less provable links to being an all-star with these contracts, and I think that it's only fair to incorporate that. And what's what's the benefit? I mean, nobody cares about the conference versus conference format. It's not like these teams don't play each other or, oh, you know, like in baseball, you know, even with interleague play, the American League and the National League don't play each other very much. The leagues have different rules. Like, that totally makes sense. It's still a little bit weird, but it's way better. But in basketball, there's no difference between the sport. It's the same rules. It's the same league. It just so happens. And it's not even geographic. I mean, to a point. I mean, you have teams like Memphis and New Orleans that are further east than, I believe, than certain Eastern Conference teams. But just because of the history of it, it's still the way it is. For sure. And the All-Star game is broken, too. I mean, now is the time to experiment. Like, that was not an entertaining game to attend last year. The best part, by far, was DeMarcus Cousins basically getting traded during the game. Um, so there's not a lot of risk when you're at least talking about the All-Star part of it. The playoffs, I, again, I think if you want to go towards a playoff format where you're getting rid of conferences, you want to have some level of, like, testing have been done before you do that because that's a huge change and it changes you know the entire history of the sport so at least start with the all-star game and see how that goes if it turns into a big success everybody feels like it's more fair uh, then you know think about going forward with uh, other things including like balancing the schedule i mean that's another thing too like in the regular season these west teams are going to be beating up on each other in the regular season much more than the eastern teams are Uh, your win totals are always kind of skewed by conference disparity every single year i think this year more than most, that will be the case. Uh, that's another place where you could try well, to and, you know, take steps towards you know a more equitable solution. And people often think about that at the top, but it's going to become more relevant at the bottom because you can see Western Conference teams, like the bottom, those few teams that we said are basically out of the playoff mix, it's going to be easier for them to fall to the bottom and maybe they get better draft picks and then they're the ones who end up getting the guys that you know, the the guys that the Eastern Conference needs so badly. And that's sort of what has happened with some of these, you know, with, with Towns and some of that, like the teams have fallen off a little bit. Some have also gotten lucky. But that'll be a little bit different this year, just depending on what happens with the Lakers pick, because no matter what, it's going to an Eastern Conference team. And we don't know exactly where they're going to be. I think they'll be better. I mean, Brooke is going to help them a lot. But the other guy I wanted to talk about, at least a little bit, because I'm just such a big fan of his game, is Paul Millsap. Millsap is a talented player. I I don't know that he's going to just transform the Nuggets, but I also do think that he's the perfect realistic complement for Nikola Jokic and that we'll get to really see what this Nuggets team can be. 
Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, that CNN line that's about like today's the day Trump became president or whatever. Uh, to me, Monday or Tuesday, whenever that deal went down, was the day that Tim Connolly finally became Nuggets president. Uh, that guy's had his job for a while and really not done a ton of substance. He's made a couple of nice, intriguing draft choices for sure. He had a couple of uh, you know, contract extensions, kind of creative contract extensions. But otherwise, you know, his trade's very forgettable and, you know, nothing really to write home about. And he just really wasn't that guy. I mean, to me, that Millsap signing was sort of like the best moment of his career, basically, you know, by a long shot. Um, maybe he's more proud of some of the home runs they hit in the draft, like, you know, getting a guy like Jokic. I mean, that's kind of a badge of honor among executives. But if you want to compete, if you really want to be anybody in this league as a front office executive, you got to land talent in free agent negotiations. And, it's set up perfectly for him. You know, Atlanta basically decided they changed direction. They didn't want to bring him back. Not a lot of other teams had the room uh, and the need to to match that kind of a contract offer. But I thought it was such a big leap forward compared to like their Dwayne Wade pursuit, where they should have had no business in that at all. It really made no sense for them as a franchise and would have really backfired had they landed him to now instead of getting this like ill-fitting shooting guard who's aging and not really uh, you know, going to help you that much and kind of get in the way of your young guys like uh, uh, Gary Harris. Now you get this perfect fit, four or five fit with Jokic. Uh, you get him on a what I consider to be a reasonable contract. I mean, they didn't have to really pay that small market tax to get him. You know, it wasn't like that fourth year at some crazy number. Uh, and on the contrary, I thought it was a pretty flexible deal. Uh, they didn't have to give up any of their young guys in a trade like that Kevin Love uh, discussion that was going on. I mean, certainly you'd rather have Millsap and Gary Harris than Love and no Gary Harris. So from all that standpoint, this was like to me, like I said, the biggest win of Connolly's um, you know, tenure. And they're very interesting. But the scary thing is, I don't know if you add an all star player like Millsap, you know, one of these. Uh, kind of underrated all-around talents if that's still enough to bump them up given the other moves that were made. But it does make them a lot more relevant. It, we wouldn't be talking about them if they hadn't done this move. Uh, and we haven't been talking about Denver sort of on the national scale for a solid three or four years now. So I don't know if that means they're going to sell a bunch of tickets off of this, uh, but it does mean that you know, they're a, a much bigger player this week than they were last week. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. And they have so much young talent that can really improve. I'm a big fan of Jamal Murray. Gary Harris is a big talent. And so they and they can figure a lot of this out. I also thought it was hilarious and a little bit frustrating. I'm guessing they didn't see the Millsap thing coming, considering a week before they traded for two power forwards who don't really make that much sense with Millsap. And then the whole, of course, the Mason Plumlee trade, but that happened months before. I mean, it's, it's a totally fair that they wouldn't have seen that coming. But Denver, I think, figures in to this, what I think is going to be just this morass of fascinating teams that I'm going to watch a ton of in the West that are going to be, you know, like basically the the general rule is going to be if they're healthier than their opponents, they're going to have a real good shot at it. And if they're not healthier than their opponents, they're going to have troubles. So like I would have Utah in that mix. I would have Portland in that mix. I would have the Clippers in that mix. I think Minnesota's probably a little bit above it, just like Oklahoma City is. Well, not just like Oklahoma City. I think OKC is better. But like those teams... Maybe, maybe Memphis. I don't think so. New Orleans, and Dallas are are on the, are in that mix as well. Like, I could honestly see any of those teams making the playoffs or missing the playoffs. Yeah, it's going to be so tight. I mean, that bubble is now just really, really expanded. You know, in terms of their front court, like if they bring back Plumley, that'll probably not be that expensive given how the market's gone this summer. Uh, and they have Lyles uh, behind Millsap. 
They got Jokic. I mean, to me, the, the, the piece that doesn't make a ton of sense at this point is Fareed. But if that's your four-man rotation, those four guys that I mentioned, is that horrible? I mean, I, I saw a lot of people kind of freaking out about, oh, they got so many different guys there. Uh, I think moving on from Gallo was the right move. If they can find a Fareed trader, they just de-emphasize his role. Uh, the rest of that group seems like it fits together fairly well. I mean, you got a little bit of everything there. Yeah, I really like the rotation. I, I, I like it top to bottom. It has too many guys, so you could handle that a couple different ways. Like, for example, I think they should really seriously consider moving Will Barton, just because, not because he's a bad player, but because he doesn't make sense with kind of where they're going. Basically, they need to figure out one guard and one power forward to me is kind of the way, or one big, and just let move move them and ideally get something better. But they don't have to do it with urgency because those guys are values on their contracts. Fareed, I think, is pushing it. But you just kind of hold hold ground. Their team is not going to be expensive this year. They're going to be closer to the cap than the tax, from what I can tell. And they'll be expensive next year, but somebody's going to get desperate and probably want to trade for Fareed, even though I think it's a mistake. That's just the way this always works. Yeah, and going back to the bubble conversation, I think the biggest losers from the first week of free agency, Utah, obviously, you know, no Hayward. That could seriously uh, alter their prospects next season. Uh, Portland, because they were capped out and stuck and just didn't do anything. So they're just praying that Nurkic turns out to be that guy he was for the, the month on the stretch. Uh, and then Memphis, you know, losing guys, not really adding any talent, being a year older and having those guys with injury histories in the past. I mean, all three of those teams are suddenly vulnerable after making the playoffs last year. Uh, and there's a lot of teams gunning for them. There's, there certainly are a lot of teams gunning for them. And going back to your hometown, I want to give Paul Allen a lot of credit because when they made those horrible, horrible moves last offseason, I was already talking about how they were going to have to give up assets to get rid of those guys. And the best thing for them, especially when they ended up with three first round picks, was I was going to say the best thing for them is to, to take their medicine eat at least one more year of those contracts and then maybe you you think about moving them later you do that it looks right now this could change but it looks right now like that's exactly what Paul Allen's going to do and that's painful I mean this team is almost as expensive as the Warriors and they're a fringe playoff team I think they could you know like their ceiling is high their ceiling is you know probably like the five seed but then their floor is low like a lot of these teams just because everybody else is so good and so kudos to Paul Allen for basically saying his openness to spending is what created this mess and basically it was the best way out and he was okay with it yeah i kind of wonder if he got talked into it by neil o'shea because i was going along with the idea of like oh you're always going to be able to dump the contracts you know one way or another somebody's going to want these guys and this has played out pretty much worst case scenario for them and i'm wondering if the reality has totally hit paul allen yet like i wonder if they're going to get to the trade deadline He's going to see his team, you know, back in that six, seven, eight, nine range again in the West, realizing, you know, fully realizing how expensive his roster is going to be. And if there's going to be a panic moment, um, I don't know how they get out of it. I mean, so many of these teams that had the cap space to potentially take on their their uh, contracts and, you know, pocket a draft pick for doing so. They seem like they've kind of dried up. Right. Like, isn't that one sided deal market? much more difficult to navigate right now than it maybe we thought it was going to be um, based on where the cap figure came in and based on you know how spending worked out I don't know like it, they're running out of options aren't they almost aren't they almost stuck and, and that's why I wonder could this blow up on them uh, I think that's possible the answer to your last question is yes it absolutely could what we could start seeing are there two variants that 
are actually more logical than a true salary dump and that we haven't seen as many of in recent years, which is one is trading a guy for a player who is on a, a better contract, but still not a good contract. So like this would be trading, you know, like let's say the, the magic instead of trading Vooch for somebody who is, you know, maybe at a different position or something else, they trade him for somebody who is on a worse contract, but makes, but but they get an asset in return, something like that. Like I think we're going to see more of those trades. This is also similar to the Corey Brewer, Lou Williams first round pick deal that the Lakers and Rockets made, which I think was in some ways mutually beneficial. I think that worked out reasonably well for both teams. The other one is the idea of instead of trading a guy into cap space, you trade somebody for somebody with a shorter contract. And I think we're going to see some of those where maybe they they can't trade Evan Turner or Myers Leonard for nothing and, you know, give up a first or two to make that happen. But maybe they can trade those guys for somebody who makes similar money and is similar quality for a, a year or two less. And then at that point, they can give a smaller asset back. I think we're going to see some of those trades moving forward. Yeah, they're going to have to figure something out. And they're in the same position that they were. It's like the flip. They, they wanted to chase a guy like Paul George. They realized they didn't have enough good assets to like put together a real package, even though they claim after the fact that they you know, had a, a pretty big you know, trade offer for Paul George on the table that, you know, uh, Indiana just passed on. But now they're also stuck with so many uninteresting assets that they're going to have to compromise one way or another on whatever the sell-off trade winds up being. Uh, you know, it's a tough spot. And I don't know. They're, I think basically their plan is just to pray that Nurkic winds up carrying them to like the four or the five seed, that there's just so much, you know, turnover in the West standings. And there's there's some vulnerabilities there because, uh, a lot of these teams are changing direction, changing their identities, that they can sneak in and sell that as progress and a, as a win and and being worth Paul Allen's money. Because otherwise, the teardown, which we kind of all expected, whether it was at the deadline or earlier this summer, just hasn't happened. And those contracts only look worse by the day. I mean, Evan Turner's continues to look terrible. Uh, Allen crap compared to what some of these shooting guards are going for this summer. It's like completely out of whack and how much money he made. Uh, so it just gets tougher and tougher and those look more toxic by the day. The last thing I wanted to talk with you about, and it's kind of an abstraction, but I'm going to be fascinated by it moving forward is, and why I was thinking about this was Nurkic is with so much less money around the league, restricted free agents next year are going to be in an extremely challenging spot because there just will not be that many places that can make offers. You can even think about what Sacramento did this year. You know, they had 50 million or thereabouts in space and they, you know, they paid Zebo, they paid George Hill. They'll still have some money, but they won't have as much as a lot of us expected. And Costa Kufos might opt in. Philly is going in a very different direction. You know, they'll spend on somebody, but it's only going to be one somebody. It's not going to be four. And there aren't that many dumping grounds either. So what I want to see is a, how does that market play out? And B, the more important part of that is where agents are going to need to make their money here is extensions. Because if I were anybody other than the top guys, I would be getting ready to take a pretty big discount off of my current expectation just to lock it in because it's going to get rough out there. I agree. And it's, I mean, the Nerlens Noel thing might kind of influence this too, right? Like if he winds up coming out in some shockingly low number this summer, I think that's going to only spur on what you're talking about, you know, especially if you're a position, like if you're a Nurkic and you're a center, you know, some teams are going to be excited about you, but a lot of teams aren't even going to care. It's just sort of like whatever, um, you know, that 
undercuts your ability to kind of have that standing, you know, big time restricted free agents offer like ready to go on day one. And it's always been hard to be a restricted free agent. Uh, you know, the only guy who's really going to cash out big time this summer is basically auto, right? Uh, maybe KCP. Um, but we'll see. So yeah, I think you're going to see a greater desire for early extensions and, you know, kind of compromised dollar figures, uh, this fall, uh, for exactly that reason. And I think the more guys, like if Nerlens, like I said, kind of comes in low, uh, that's going to accelerate the, the phenomenon. It also happens that a lot of the players that are going to be extension eligible this summer, that technically they're extension eligible right now are really, really challenging guys to do that. Jabari is coming back from injury. Andrew Wiggins, it's just basically how much of a sacrifice he's going to make. Zach Levine coming back from an injury. And then a lot of guys in that class that we just don't know how good they are. And so even just coming to a number in the first place would have been hard, but coming to a number that is lower than that because of expectations is going to be a challenge too. Yeah, and if I was front offices, I on those guys, for sure, I'd be taking a hard line. For Milwaukee, I wouldn't do it. I'd let it play out um, because the, the risk factor with his multiple knee injuries on Jabari is just, you know, let him go all the way and, and see how it goes. Uh, with Wiggins, too, that was one of those guys who we've always said, no-brainer max, no-brainer max. Um, are we so sure about that anymore? You know, if, if you're Tibbs, do you want to make him prove it? Do you want to, like, you know, take a harder line stance and – um, and see where it winds up. I think if I were them, I probably would, um, because, you know, Jimmy's presence makes him more tradable if, if things kind of blow up. Uh, and the worst case scenario is, you know, he hits the summer and there is one team waiting for him and ready to go all in on him. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, you still have the ability to keep him. So I don't know. Yeah, I think and they can make a max qualifying offer if they want to, without any sort of in, in, implication there, you know, what, yeah. what the bulls did with Jimmy. The guy that I've been thinking about the last couple of days, especially with the turnover that's going on with the Jazz, is Rodney Hood. Hood is a good player, but he hasn't definitively proven it. The expectation now has to be that he's going to start this year. But if he's better as a two than a three, they just drafted Donovan Mitchell, who is not there yet, but looks good. And so, like, what's going to happen with him? Like, th- those type of guys, not really the best of the best. I mean, we could, we could spend an hour talking about what the hell you would do with Joel Embiid, but... It's going to be such a challenge this year in a way that we haven't seen in a long, long time, if ever. Yeah, what would you do with Joel Embiid? I mean, I'm almost in this mindset now if I'm a team where I'd be really strongly thinking about just waiting it all out. Like, what, you know, what's the downside? Other than, I guess, you know, ruffled feathers. Well, yeah, um, with, with, with Embiid, I would be asking him to take a huge discount. You know, basically the idea, because if he has another year, if he has another healthy year, like ba- basically whatever happens in the next 12 months is so valuable as information. I don't, th- the only way that I would ever give that up without it is if he takes like, I'm talking eight to 10 million less than his maximum, like that sort of thing. And I am one of the people driving the Joel Embiid could be a superstar train. But the reason is just his injury history is terrifying. And so if he takes 15 million per year, yeah, of course, no brainer. You do that as many years as he wants. But if he wants 20 to 25, because like his max is probably going to be somewhere around 25, hell no. No, I'm not going to give him that money right now. I'm going to wait this year and, and be ready to pay him his full max. But, and, but even with him, the uncertainty is so important that I would even consider like losing him for nothing is a worthwhile thing just because you would be doing that with the knowledge of what happens. Yeah, I mean, this is a major shift that I think we should be highlighting here is like when franchise guys or supposed franchise guys like Joel Embiid and Andrew Wiggins 
are both for their own reasons kind of giving you pause at just rushing to hand them as much money as possible. Um, and yes, with Embiid, the health issues definitely weighs over everything. But at the same time, like his ceiling is so high that how well he played last season was so amazing that he was an automatic max guy, you know, during that run. Uh, the fact that the market has changed enough where you even feel like you can negotiate with these players or you should negotiate with these players, uh, rather than just, you know, backing up the Brinks truck, that's a major development, you know, and, and I think we're going to really start to feel that, uh, if not now, then by the time we're, we're getting to those, contract talks you know come october uh you know when they usually go down so on this with a, a very quick thing you know we're we're here on july 6th vegas summer league starts on the 7th and then free agency still going on what are you looking forward to who are you looking forward to seeing and what moves are you still anticipating just or want to want to see what happens yeah i really think we've gotten through the fireworks uh you know so i, I guess I'm now just sort of kind of limping to the finish line in terms of free agency. And like, there's going to be some moves and various guys signing here and there. We might have one more eye opening trade. Uh, you know, Carmelo is a guy to kind of maybe keep an eye on, but you know, past that, I think the major stuff has been done uh, in terms of what I'm looking forward to in Las Vegas. Uh, it's always the rookies, um, you know, because I, I don't watch a ton of college basketball. So locally, I'm very excited to see what Lonzo can do. I, I love that pick for LA. Uh, he's at the top of my list. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think Brandon Ingram might be the because just because Ben Simmons isn't going to be there playing, I think Brandon Ingram might be sort of the headliner of the entire thing. Like if there's going to be someone who really jumps forward and kind of makes a statement, uh, you would hope it would be him. Um, you know, but past those guys, uh, you know, I, I usually I just have an open minded approach. I just want to see all the lottery guys really get a chance to look at them for the first time. Remember a couple of years ago, it was Porzingis who just popped, you know, from summer league just right off the bat. Uh, so you're always kind of hoping for, you know, someone who maybe you haven't evaluated previously in person to, you know, to be that guy who jumps. Um, but, uh, you know, past that, you know, Fultz is also a guy uh, who I've been hearing some pretty good things out of that that Utah camp. And, and maybe you can speak to that. But you know, he's another one where uh, I want to see it in person, you know, show me. And, and that's just kind of the fun of Summer League, though. Yeah, I think that you, you got it right on there. Summer League, in terms of free agency, what I'm looking for now are the restricted free agents. Nerlens, KCP, Jermichael Green, Simmons, Tim Hardaway, like those type of guys. What happens with them? And then who takes pay cuts to play for the good teams and who tries to hold out for a little bit more? I think those are going to be interesting, even though the Warriors are close to done. Cleveland still has some stuff to figure out. And then the elephant in the room that we haven't really talked about much and I don't want to get into it now is just, does it keep looking like it's looking right now where the table is kind of being set for LeBron to maybe leave after this season? Yeah, I, that that is one good one. I mean, does Cleveland get desperate? To me, they're huge losers here from the first week of free agency. Uh, you know, they're just trying to hold the fort together with these thirty-plus guys who are just not going to impact the finals at all. LeBron knows that better than anybody. Uh, the dysfunction of the front office is just something that a guy like LeBron will have no time for. You look at how many businesses he runs and operates. He knows good leadership. He knows good management. Uh, certainly he can't be feeling like that's what he's been backed with right now in Cleveland, given how their summer's gone. If they're not better entering the season, uh, that's a huge red flag to me. And so how do they address that? Do they get desperate or do they just take their lumps? Uh, either way, I think that is really risky in terms of being able to keep LeBron. And uh, for all of those reasons, uh, they are definitely a team to circle here over the next month. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Danny. Always take care. Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at Sports Illustrated, and you can follow him on Twitter 
at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love talking with him, and it was a, a, a lot of things to get through. It was amazing, like, you know, how far it was until we really got to Hayward and Butler and, and Millsap and so many other things. And that's part of why the NBA offseason is just such a blast, is because there's a lot of material to work through, and surely there will be more. I mean, we talked about Dirk on the show that had broken Milos Teodosic broke after that with the Clippers, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll see where all this goes. Of course, there will be a lot of different things to discuss in the offseason. I am going to, uh, as of now, bring back the division capsules. That's what I call it. So it is an offseason review, regular season preview, probably with two guests for each one as long as I can pull it off. And I really enjoy those because I try to get different perspectives and then they can bounce off each other and bounce off me and there's a lot to, to go through. So I don't know exactly when those are going to start, but at some point and that'll be six and then there are plenty of other things to discuss. I'm guessing I'm going to do one on Summer League once Vegas Summer League ends or is close to the end. So we'll see. That's something that I'm going to be working on. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, you can leave a review, you can download every episode. That's a very good thing. And the best way to do that is by subscribing. And those are all great for this podcast or anything else that you like. You can also check out, of course, my other work, Dunked On. Nate and I do a Patreon. I'm going to do an airport AMA on Friday for the next flight, which is one of the fun benefits that we get for that. And then I'm not doing Locked On Warriors anymore, but I'm, of course, I'm still producing Warriors content at The Athletic. And then regards to free agency, I have material at The Athletic, at a couple things at SI, Sporting News, and then Real GM as well. And I brought back the CBA Encyclopedia. I wrote a piece. I'm going to I'm working on two more. Chris Reyna has a piece on tampering which was also timely and was very good. And so you can check all that out if you have any feedback on the show. Good, bad, or indifferent at Daniel Rue on Twitter, but the far better way is NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it, but I do not promise the time to respond. I am very busy. Um, One of the things I'm doing is I'm actually uh, in the process of editing my book. So that is the next three weeks of my life is going to be everything else and that. So it's, it's a fun process, and that's really what's going on. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.